0: You're listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. A pleasure to welcome Tara Norman. How are you doing, Tara?
1: Just fine, sir. Thank you.
0: We're going to talk with Tara Norman about her first book. And it's, to me, such a fascinating topic. I want to get right into it and hope to have some time toward the end to find out how she got involved in this. Tara Norman, Tara Heim Norman, is uh, author of the book, The Vindication of Lewis M. Roach, published by Dorrance, uh, and it was published uh, this year, uh, 2016. It is the story of, uh, of a real crime that occurred in Montgomery County, New York, uh, on a farm in the town of, of Palatine, uh, way back in 1913. And Tara, in writing this book, Uh, Comes to the conclusion that the crime was heinous, but that the uh, prosecution, successful prosecution of a suspect, was heinous, and that he was wrongly put to death. That man being Lewis Roach. Uh, Could you start us off uh, with our our journey to this uh, long ago time? Um, What what happened? What was the uh, the scene of the crime at the home of John Barrett?
1: Well, John Barrett was a—I um, hate to say nowadays—67-year-old elderly farmer uh, who was on a small farm that he had uh, that has kind of been broken off from another larger tract, the Nellis tract. And he—he he was, you know, pretty frugal, pretty poor, um, but he had two uh, grown children who lived with him. His wife having passed a few years before that, um, and he was, you know, just kind of. Um, making one day at a time. Uh, uh, again, not very well off, and lived in fairly primitive conditions, really, in the home. Um, and one night he um, retired from uh, after supper, and he had rheumatism. So his daughter had kind of, daughter Katie, had kind of massaged his shoulders to make him feel better, and he went on up to bed, as well as his other adult child, Um, By the name of of Boyd Barrett They called him Boydie, And Boyd had some uh, speech impediment issues And and actually ground mal epilepsy So everybody at that time Considered Boyd not to be Very mentally competent Although I I can take some disagreement Mm. With that at this point But those Boyd and his dad Went went to bed And uh, according to Katie She sat in the living room With her feet propped up on the on the coal, on the wood stove, um, and goes off. And the next time she heard anything, somebody had hit her over the head. Well, um, as the, as it progressed, of course, John Barrett was shot. John Barrett, Barrett was bludgeoned to death, and um, um, it, it was it was a terribly heinous crime. Uh, all the wild boy standing, um, maybe at the top of the stairs. We don't know. Uh, listening to all this, but not coming down mm-hmm. and, until whoever committed the crime had left, and then he went down and helped his sister. And by then, of course, they they even the perpetrator even turned over a wood stove, so they couldn't even get into where the father was. They had to go all the way around the house and into the kitchen. And of course, the person who committed the crime also tried to set the house on fire. Mm-hmm. The uh, kitchen was a wood box was on fire, and they put that out first and then went to their father. And of course he was, he was dead. Hmm. Um, then sent for neighbors and, um, the whole thing went down in—in in that way, but it was, you know, it's a small family community. And when uh, a crime like that is committed, it's, it's, people are just, uh, beside themselves with fear and hmm. they were.
0: Yeah. And, uh, she sent her brother, uh, she, Katie, sent yeah. her brother Boyd out to get help. And, uh, he didn't come back for some time. In fact, he didn't go to the closest farm, and there's and that no. becomes part of the story, but eventually he comes back with other other people. And by, Is it by then that John Barrett is dead, or we, we just don't know?
1: Well, John Barrett was dead, um, according to what the medical um, community believed, was that he was the silent blow, which was a blow on top of his head. Uh, was actually the, the what killed him, although from the other wounds he would have died very shortly. Hmm. But the final was was a blow on the top of the head. Hmm. But he was dead by the time the his children reached him. And then, of course, by the time Boyd was able to get a man by the name of Roller, who was up a, a, a distance up the road, uh, Boyd tried to ride a horse, we believe. A horse threw him. Um, he, it took him about 30 minutes to grab the horse and, and get the rollers to hear him as he, uh, because he couldn't go up to the porch. He was holding on the horse, I guess. Um, but they finally got to the house. And, again, not in much of a hurry because Boyd had a, a speech problem and the rollers didn't understand. They thought he said John Barrett was sick. And mm-hmm. so they took time to catch the horse get down back to the to Barrett place, put the horse away, and they finally came into the scene, um, which was pretty gruesome. Mm.
0: And the, the even though they came kind of late, the people got there, I gathered from your book, before the cops, or I mean, and the cops oh, in this case yes. being the sheriff.
1: Mm-hmm. And the first call they made, well, of course, the Barrett's did not have a phone, so the Rollers uh, went back to their house and placed a call to doc- Dr. Brownell, and who was the local uh, doctor, and maybe their doctor. And then, of course, Brownell, or the first thing he did was call the coroner. And then I guess finally the sheriff was brought there. But it was it was quite a period of time before law enforcement got there. And so the neighbors got there first. And, of course, they all called each other, and the neighbors came uh, to the crime scene and really obliterated any evidence that there, that there could have been.
0: And uh, maybe to advance the story, the nearby farm, the one that Boyd did not go to to get help, was a, a farm operated by George Potter and his wife, Ruth Nellis Potter. And right. George ends up becoming a suspect in this in this case. And he was uh, a farmer, but he was a very prosperous farmer. Uh, wh- what would you say? Kind of a gentleman farmer. And he married into a very a prosperous family
1: yes he married into the Nellis family his his father-in-law was Andrew Nellis who had a very prosperous law practice in Johnstown and in in Albany of course Andrew figures in the in the uh, trial Um, but George married Ruth and Andrew set them up on the family farm uh, which was a large was a large acreage of which only a piece was taken off that Andrew's father had sold to John Barrett. And, um, but he, the neighbors, you could see there was jealousy. Uh, George really didn't, I don't think knew much about farming. He went, took some classes at Cornell, but he, um, he was almost given an unlimited supply of money to do whatever he wanted to do and was considered a quote-unquote scientific farmer. And uh, I think the neighbors, um, or basic farmers like my granddad and his dad uh, resented being told by George what they were doing wrong. <laughs> mm. So he was not particularly popular in the neighborhood, and frankly, his um, he was, um, his social contacts are more down in Canada, Harry, in mm. that area. The locals um, did really not like George very much.
0: Yeah. But why would he be a suspect in this murder? And I gather it stemmed from something that Katie, the daughter of the victim, told the authorities. Right.
1: Well, they asked her, you know, did your have any enemies? And first she said, well, no. And John Barrett probably didn't. I mean, he was well liked in the area. And then she said, oh, there's one. He argued with George Potter over the use of a well. Um, and, um, in fact, there was an argument, apparently, on the borderline of this property that, that Barrett had, acquired from Nellis' father, um, it, it, there was a verbal agreement that Barrett could use a well that was kind of over the line. And so that was the that was where the argument was, because apparently there was no documentation hmm. um, that that was kind of an oral gentleman's agreement between the elder Barrett and the and elder Nellis.
0: No. So
1: that was the only thing, really, that, that raised people's interest in George Potter as a... Uh, Suspect also, of course, George really wanted to buy back the Barrett farm. It's not clear why, uh, but he did want to buy it back, and he wanted to set Lewis Roach up as uh, as running that particular farm. And again, it was a very small, thirty acres, and not very, not very uh, productive. But um, George decided he wanted to buy it. Sent up a couple people over to inquire because. He didn't want Barrett to know it was him because he figured the price would go up. Mm -hmm. So those are the the grounds that people in the community use to suspect uh, George Potter.
0: And you brought in the 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 man who actually was convicted and executed, Mm -hmm. Lewis Roach, was and there was another man who was a hired hand for George Mm -hmm. Potter. But Lewis uh, Roach worked for Potter, uh, lived in uh, it was I think you described it as tenant housing on uh, Potter's farm.
1: Right, he, was, he would have been, his house would have been on the same side of the road as John Barrett's house, and then across the road would have been the Potter home. Hmm. Um, but but he had, Lewis had worked for George Potter for a few months.
0: As the days go by, uh, well, two things. One thing is a personal interest in this story on your part, I believe it must have been about this time, that uh, somehow... Uh, someone fired a shot through your family farm, uh, in uh, yeah. in near Fonda. Can you tell us about well, that. Well,
1: my uh, my my grandfather's farm was all oh, within two miles, up in Stone Arabia. So it was within a couple of miles of where the murder scene was. And my grandfather and uh, the neighbors were very frustrated because nobody was being apprehended for this crime they were very seriously considering taking up a collection and hiring their own private detective to look at the case. And there was someone in the area who I think the book pretty much indicates, excuse me, that um, this person was out shooting through the windows of the neighborhood just to convince them that that murderer was still out there. And my grandfather was one of those people, and that's how I discovered this whole thing was, I was doing genealogy and found a news story that the shot
0: had gone through my grandparents' window and just missed them. Wow! And egging on the authorities in their, their pursuit of George uh, Potter and uh, Lewis Roach was uh, an individual named Van Wee. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's well. What, what? Why did he want to uh, prosecute Potter and, by extension, uh, Roach?
1: I think. Earl Van Lee um, had some sort of a real hatred of George Potter. Earl was raised on an adjacent farm, and again, the Van Lee family is, is well-known and uh, longstanding in that community. And I, it, it seemed to me that Earl was looking for recognition. There was going to be a reward, um, and he, he just wanted to nail Potter and um i honestly believe that that earl knew really who killed john barrett and he knew it wasn't potter and he knew it wasn't lewis roach but he thought he could get to potter because he felt lewis was weak and they could they could accuse lewis and browbeat lewis and then he would um he would implicate potter and then they could run with it i I really think that was their strategy
0: Well, this fascinating tale continues in just a moment on the podcast. Uh, Tara Norman, our guest, her book, The Vindication of Louis M. Roach. Just want to mention a word about our GoFundMe campaign to support the Historians podcast. We're raising funds. Our goal for the year is $2,500. We're of some hundreds of dollars short of that goal and would appreciate a donation of of any size, you can uh, donate by going to gofundme.com forward slash historians2016. Or if you'd uh, rather send a donation by mail, you can make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore. Send it to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Now back to Tara Norman, the author of The Vindication of Louis M. Roach, the story of a hired hand who ultimately was convicted and executed for a murder uh, that uh, Tara Norman, Norman says he never committed. Um, eventually, the authorities arrest or, or they start questioning Roach, and uh, you have raised real concerns about how he was questioned. sound sounds like, a, from the description, a very a brutal uh, kind of questioning, and mm-hmm. um, eventually, he confesses. In fact, he confesses twice. Uh, what, what, he, right. what What happened there?
1: Well, he um, he was apprehended. Now, what Van Wee, who became a special deputy by the way, uh, had a subpoena for him that they had convinced the coroner to issue. Um, so, but he told Lewis he was under arrest. So it was a subpoena masquerading as a warrant, really. And um, so Lewis was taken to the coroner's office and told in essence that if you confess and you give us George Potter, we will keep you out of the electric chair. That was the bargain he was given, uh, which, you know, one would indicate was a form of immunity. Mm -hmm. So um, Van Lee, from the again the very sketchy, messed up crime scene, which I go into in the book, had constructed this scenario, and so I believe that Lewis was dictated a um, a confession, which he signed, and then later on dictated another confession. The first confession did not implicate Potter, but the second confession did. Huh. And when you read the second confession, of course there were absolutely there were so many conflicts and. And um, it, it, it was so many impossible things in that confession that physically couldn't have even happened. Um, but Lewis believed that in order for him to ever see his family, his wife was expecting their second child, and he would, he would go to the electric chair unless he, unless he signed these confessions. Huh.
0: So, so he did,
1: okay. and this this interrogation was over several hours. Yep. And, um, and uh, that he was pretty much captive at the coroner's office.
0: Okay, the, the minutes are ticking by here. I just want to make sure we get the okay the, the basics of the story in. Uh, so, Lewis Roach is in custody. Eventually, they arrest George Potter. But mm-hmm. when it, it, it when push comes to shove, they go to court and into the uh, county court in Fonda. There's been a a change in in DAs, and it'll change back when the trial takes place. But the new DA uh, says Potter should be released. Why was that?
1: Well, because I think in the interim, the one between when Potter was picked up and the actual arraignment, um, Andrew Nellis, who was his father-in-law and an attorney, wanted to examine under oath Lewis Roach. And Lewis was going to to, um, disavow those two confessions under oath. And they realized that that was really the only evidence they had against George Potter. They had no physical evidence against George at all, and George had an alibi. He had people with him the whole night uh when the murder occurred. So they went they you know we, we we can't we keep um we can't we can't keep George. we've got to free George because they knew they had no case against him except for the confessions. They wanted to protect those confessions, and they didn't want to put uh, Lewis under oath to repudiate them.
0: Now, in the trial, uh, the the new D.A. is George Albot, but the previous Uh D.A., a well-known man from Amsterdam, went on to be a judge, I believe, named Charles Hardys, he actually Uh prosecuted uh, the case, and the verdict came back that uh, Lewis Roach was guilty. Yes.
1: And, and during the trial, you, there's a lot of information about a, a quote-unquote expert by the name of Albert Hamilton. Um, the, there was some blood evidence. The blood evidence was very faulty. Um, there was you know, all those kinds of details in there. But um, Lewis Roach was convicted, um, I think, because here comes this quote-unquote expert, uh, Albert Hamilton, and the prosecution used him very well. And convinced the jury that the bloody, there were some bloody fingerprints on a clapboard outside the kitchen at the Barrett house, and that they were Lewis's prints. And they could not even, they could not even distinguish from the testing that Albert Hanson did whether or not that was human blood or animal blood, since the Barretts butchered animals and sold meat. Hmm. They couldn't, they couldn't testify that the blood was there, uh, was not there before the night of the 20th of December when the murder occurred. There, there was all these things that um, that were shrouded in in the mystique of Albert Hamilton. Hmm. Um, subsequently, in some other research, of course, they actually called him the most dangerous man in America because he did he did um, participate in so many miscarriages of justice.
0: Hmm. Now, after the conviction, I thought one uh, interesting anecdote: Louis Roach goes off to back to the county jail with the sheriff, Ernest Curlbaugh or Curl Baum, and they're kind of just walking down the, not together. He's not handcuffed, not shackled, and anything like that. And apparently the sheriff, anyway, and the sheriff's wife uh, came to like Lewis.
1: That's true. And a lot of people in the community were beginning to realize that Lewis was not guilty. Um, but the the wheels of, if you want to call it justice, had, had continued. And uh, if, you, if you look at the prosecution, how they, they had a suspect, they had to solve this case, and they solved it. And yet, Lewis rose was collateral damage. Hmm. And um, it, it's subsequent to that. Uh, some of the other research I did really, really shows that Lewis could not have had anything to do with this and that he was just a scapegoat. They wanted to solve the crime. They solved the crime, and the people who knew sadly let an innocent man go to his death. Hmm. And there's there's the crux of it.
0: And uh, he was held at Sing Sing Prison. I believe they filed an appeal. Uh, there was yeah. a petition for clemency, which ended up being signed by eight of the 12 jurors?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, again, because the community was beginning to realize that, oh, this horrible thing had happened, but they, were, they were, it almost felt powerless, I guess, to do anything about it, but they, the jurors' petition, and of course Charles Whitman, the governor at the time, really was ser- seriously considering it. And as front of the hearing he said, you don't really want this guy. You want George Potter. And he saw right through it. Um, but unfortunately, um, he communicated with the judge. His name was Henry Kellogg. And the judge said, oh, no, he's guilty. He, uh, he wanted to be president. And he needed the political support that uh, Kellogg represented in the northern part of the state. So mm-hmm. he went along with it and did not commute the sentence.
0: So the, the crime occurred December 20th, 1913. September 3rd, 1915, Louis Roach is electrocuted at Sing Sing Prison. And you have a right. very graphic right. account of that.
1: And I start the book with the execution, and I end it with the electrocution. And then, of course, in the epilogue, uh, I believe I have solved the crime.
0: Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Two things. You said that Louis Roach could not do it. Why was that? Who could not have been the murderer? Well,
1: first of all, I believe that he wasn't even in the area uh when it, when the crime actually occurred. He and his, his coworker had gone to Canada Harry to buy supplies and they were working their way up that very steep hill up up to McKinley, uh, with a farm wagon in the dark pulled by a pregnant mare. They were going very slowly. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, he went into his house, his wife testified that he had not left the house since he was dropped off. The, people, the, the story that uh, Van Lee had concocted in the confession said, well, Lewis had, had stored the gun in the horse barn. Uh, and then after he got back from Kennedy, Hill, he went to the horse barn and got the gun. The problem is, if he'd gone in the horse barn to get the gun, he would have encountered his co-worker who was putting the horse away. I mean, there was, it, it. and plus the fact the timelines were just, nothing, nothing added up. And the only concrete time they had was actually 1035 when Lewis, when uh, David Roller, the the farmer who they went to for help, actually documented when Boyd knocked on the door. No, it, so it, um, it, Lewis most likely was still on his way up the hill from Canada to Harry when the when the murder actually occurred.
0: So your prem, or your belief is that uh, the murderer was a, possibly a suitor, someone who was yes. courting uh, the victim's daughter.
1: Right. And um, I've, 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 I I mean, having looked at and there was just one piece of the trial transcript that said Katie was going to put out a reward because she was looking for someone and uh Andrew Nellis was able to get it in get this man's name in the record, which was pretty um pretty skillful on his part because Hardy's was uh, was the one who was mostly who mostly prevailed in his objections, and as soon as that uh, the uh topic of her suitors came out it was it was gone but so he the did I... get the name in
0: okay the and the name was is not
1: that... quite correct in the record, but when I read some news articles. Those newspaper men knew this guy. Huh. And they got his name right.
0: And, and what was then it? I
1: proceeded to research him.
0: What was his name?
1: His name was Crowder. Leonard? They said his mm-hmm. name was Crowley in the transcript. Ah. His name was Crowder. And when I researched him, it was it was very plausible. that, in fact, he was the guy.
0: Huh. And the idea being that uh, the suitor, and if it was Crowder or, or someone else, uh, came to the house. Um, the father uh confronted his daughter and the suitor and then the violence ensued. Right. Wow.
1: And and believe it or not, um in, in part of the record, um, Lewis helped me with that through his communication with Father Cashin, who was the um um who was the prison chaplain um at the time and who became quite close to Lewis. Um so Lewis, Lewis's um, suggestions helped me track it down, too.
0: We've been talking about The Vindication of Lewis M. Roach, uh, published by Dorrance uh, this year, written by Tara Norman. Uh, let me just uh, bring up a cu- in the closing minutes here a, c- a couple of things about our guest, the author. Uh, she will be at Mysteries on Main Street in Johnstown on Saturday, October 1st, if you're listening to this before October 1st. Otherwise, I'm sure her book will be uh, widely available soon. Uh, Tara Normans, uh, from our area originally, uh, from Montgomery County, but for many years the city clerk of Naples, Florida, uh, got involved in the Lewis Roach case uh, because of her interest in genealogy. And I do have to compliment you. I plow some of the same ground in writing my own history stories, but not in such detail. You credit the uh, well-known among local history folks, uh, Tom Trenisky's uh, web uh, cache of old newspapers of uh, Fulton history. but So you've uh, gone to all the hundreds of newspaper accounts You've also g- gotten the records of the courts, uh, the records of Sing Sing prison. You have put a lot of work into this. We have just two minutes left. How how, how did you? Uh, I mean, uh, how, how much work went into it?
1: I, I probably worked on it for about five years, but I hadn't. I wasn't retired all of that time, and, and the, the story just grabbed a hold of me, and I and, and wouldn't let go basically, and um, so I, and, and I am a research. I'm a researchaholic, if you will. I look, I'm a paralegal. I love to do legal research. So this was such a challenge, and there was so much information extant um, out there that I just, especially the sing-sing file, the clemency file, which was came from the New York State Archives in Albany. Um, so I, it just grabbed a hold of me, and I have a very understanding husband who, <laughs> who helped me with this and um so i just i just had to do it because i knew here's an innocent man whose name needed to be cleared and i have found some of his descendants and believe me they are appreciative
0: and of course it changes maybe the perspective on on some of the the people in uh, in officialdom if you will uh, in Montgomery yes. County at the time
1: yes it does yeah uh, because i believe that they uh, i believe that they many of them knew they had the wrong man. Uh, I I really firmly believe that, but the the juggernaut was, was, um, it it just, it was unstoppable, and the people who knew the truth or believed in Lewis did not have the the wherewithal or the authority or the clout to do anything about it. It was was a sad thing. It was a real tragedy, and I think the people in the area just really strove uh, to forget about it, which is why, My family never said to me somebody shot through my grandparents' window when my daddy was Mm -hmm. a year old. Um, By the way, before I forget, the book is now available and will be on Amazon and and Barnes & Noble probably by the end of the month. But you can get it from Doris Dorrance, D-O-R-R-A-N-C-E, bookstore.com.
0: Okay, we're just out of time. Tara Norman, The Vindication of Lewis Roach. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast.